We all want to be part of something bigger than ourselves, something that both started before us and reaches beyond us. This summer, we look to the entire Bible to see God's mission in the world and how He calls His people to join Him in it. As we as a church look to beginning a new congregation, we turn towards the scriptures to see how God moves us out on mission. Join us this summer for a missional conversation. All right. Well, kids ages three to pre-K can head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship. Uh, The rest of you, if you go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, that's where we're at this morning. I do want to, he's not here, but I do want to just kind of give a shout out. Stephen Hockman did all of those promo videos. Um, that dude is insanely gifted, and uh, we are grateful for the service he provided for us to make those, to produce those, to give us a plan, like to say, here's what we're going to do, and here's how we're going to shoot it. He's, he's great. So, anyway, uh, as, you're, as you're finding your way in Matthew, if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. The text is in your order of worship. If you don't own a Bible, there are some on the back table. Um, if, if you only own a Bible that... Uh, was only readable in 1652. Um, take one of those because you need to be able to understand it, and it's hard to understand with language that hasn't been used since Shakespeare. Okay, um, look, I said this earlier, but the the word mission has become a Christian buzzword, and and like all Christian buzzwords, if you're not familiar with with uh, Christianity, we have our own kind of cultural lingo. It's often stuff that we use, and it doesn't really mean anything. We just kind of say it, or oftentimes we think we know what it means, but it means something different to someone over here, or, and then someone, even something, a third thing to someone over there. And mission is like that. So at this point, mission can mean anything from like taking a vow of poverty and living in a modern-day monastic community, uh, to, to planting gardens in the city, to uh, going door-to-door, uh, doing door-to-door evangelism. And so... Um, Unfortunately, as is often the case with most things Christian, what it probably means more often than not, if you think that you're missional, is just talking about mission. That's because that's what we do as Christians. We just talk about stuff. So this summer, we're looking at the whole Bible to see what the idea of Christians joining in God's mission look like. And so three weeks ago, some of you will remember, we looked at God's promise to Abraham that, that God would actually... Uh, do this great work through his family and that he would bless Abraham, not just to bless him, but so that he would be a blessing to the world. That that was um, kind of the, the beginning of the working out of this promise for God to reconcile humanity to himself, a promise that was fulfilled in Jesus. And then the next week we looked at the scope of mission, that God brings us in for those who are out. You remember that from Isaiah 49? He brings us in for people that are out. Um, He brings us into his family for others. And then last week we looked at how Jesus promised to build his church, that nothing can stop it. This week uh, we look to the last words of Jesus on earth to find uh, what what is this mandate that he gives us. So if you have your place, we're in Matthew 28, which is the last chapter. If you'd stand, that's our habit here, in honor of God's word. As we do this, I just want to remind us that this is God's word. God's word. So many of us have kind of been raised in a culture that assumes that God doesn't speak, that we have to grow up in the darkness for Him. But the Bible boldly proclaims that God does speak. That He has given us His Word. He has made Himself known. So hear it in that way this morning. 
starting in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is God's word for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come into this place bringing different things with us, different stories, different emotions. Some of us are excited about what you're doing in our lives. Some of us are grieving and hurting. Uh, Some of us are bored, already disinterested. God, you are a God who meets us where we are, and so we pray that you would meet us where we are. Jesus, you have called your church to be, uh, to, to this, to what we just read. And so, Lord, today I pray that you would give us uh, faith to receive that, ears to hear exactly what that means, and courage to trust you to do all that you've said you will do. No matter where we are, Lord, I I pray that you would meet us. Um, Lord, would you let Jesus and all he has done come to the forefront? Let the one who speaks fall to the wayside, Lord. And preach your gospel to us, because you alone hold the words of eternal life. So we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So uh, this passage, Matthew 28, as technically verses 18 to 20, was the first passage of Scripture that I memorized after I became a Christian. It was kind of required. Uh, when, in, in the campus organization I was a part of, I became a Christian in college, and, and uh, this was like, this was the thing. And, and there's, there's a reason for that, because this passage is kind of important. I mean, some people have gone so far as to say that this is what we get in this passage. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, is the reason the church exists. Actually, they say it in French, but that's not important. That just makes you sound smart. It's the reason that the church exists. I I don't think that's an exaggeration at all. These verses are huge, but it's also one of the most ignored passages in the Bible. That's ironic. It's one of the most important, yet also one of the most ignored. And that's because church folks, churchy folks, we love the moral stuff. We love the the rules and the how do we make our noses clean and how do we stay moral uh, because ultimately morality is about us. It doesn't ever touch other people. And so we love that kind of stuff. It allows us to stay insular and isolated. Um, But we can't get around this. It is here, and it is very clear. And so this morning, as we come into this passage, we're going to look at it three ways as we look at this missional mandate. We're going to look at the authority of the mandate, we're going to look at the mission of the mandate, and then we're going to look at the presence with the mandate, okay? The authority, the mission, and the presence. And what we're going to see is this, um, in a nutshell, that the mission of the king is a mission with the king. The mission of the king, which is real, is a mission with the king, which is good. Okay? So let's do that. Now, now before we get to the words that are written here, let me speak quickly about the one who writes them. Some of you will know, because it's, we said it's the book of Matthew, that this, this letter, this gospel, was written by this guy named Matthew. Most of us, my guess is in this room, would have not liked Matthew. 
Matthew was not the kind of dude that you would want to invite to your parties, and he probably was not the kind of dude, before he came to know Jesus, that you were thinking would be a likely candidate for following Jesus. He was what, what you would probably call in our society like a government-sponsored shakedown artist. Like, his job was to extort you for money. He was a tax collector, which isn't like the IRS, okay? It was way worse. It was like Rome said, here's how much we need. He bid a certain amount to them to see if he could get more. So he actually bid out the job. He was a contractor. He bid out the job to overcharge his own people to get money for an occupying nation. And whatever extra he collected on top of what he got for the nation, he could keep. And oh, by the way, there are really big dudes with swords and plumed hats sitting next to him saying you have to pay it. Not the most popular guy ever. So he's making a lot of money. Jesus walks by his little tax table one day and says, yo, dude, you're with me now. And he goes, okay. And he leaves all the money on the table and he gets up and he follows him. Probably not the kind of guy you would think, wait a minute, is that what followers of Jesus are like? Yes. It's exactly what they're like. Okay? Now, that's who he is. Let's, let's look at verses 16 to 17, because these are like my favorite verses in the entire Bible, okay? It says this, Now the eleven disciples went into Galilee to the mountain that Jesus had commanded them, and seeing him, they worshipped, but some doubted. Okay? Let me catch you up if you're not familiar with the story. Forty-two days before this, Jesus had been handed over by the Jews, Jewish authorities. He's, he's a Jew, right? He was handed over by Jewish authorities to the Romans, who stripped him naked, beat him, and flogged him, which is literally like taking the skin off of his body, nailed him to a cross, and hung him there until he suffocated to death. Right? And then a couple days later, he's up walking around again. Walking through doors. He, he lived, he died, he rose again. Okay? And after he rises again, he tells his disciples to go meet him at a mountain in Galilee, which is a northern province of what would have been understood, what we now would consider Israel. Um, and most of, these, most of these folks, these followers, were from there. So they go to the mountain, where, and Jesus is there just like he said he would be. And now Matthew tells us that they see him, and they worship him, but some doubted. That is awesome. I want you to imagine that for a minute. What exactly are they doubting? The risen Christ is standing before them. And some of them are like, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure about this. Do you think that's really hip? Like, what are they doubting? And this is great because it kind of normalizes doubt, doesn't it? Like, some of us were raised in churches. If, If you were raised in a church, you might have been raised in a church in which doubt was kind of frowned upon. Like, that is unworthy of the Christian The original disciples of Jesus are standing looking at the risen Christ and they are doubting. And so what this does is it does two things. First and foremost, it tells us that doubt isn't necessarily based on a lack of evidence. Uh, I know that messes with us, right? Because a lot of us, maybe we're not really sure where we, where we are with Jesus, and we're, we're certainly not great on the whole resurrection thing. But let me be clear about something. The Bible is very clear that the resurrection is not a peripheral issue to Christianity. It is central. No, no resurrection, no Christian. Sorry. No, no belief in the resurrection, no Christian. And so, if, Paul says this, if 
if Jesus is not raised from the dead, we're still in our sins. Right? Because Christianity... Well, we'll get to that in a second. Uh, So, first and foremost, it tells us that doubt isn't fundamentally, necessarily, about a lack of evidence. Here are people with all the evidence they needed. The very thing that you're like, you know, if I saw Jesus, if I saw... If Jesus was raised and I saw him, I'd believe in him. Really? They didn't. And what that tells us is that a lot of times our doubts aren't so much about a lack of evidence as they are about a lack of repentance. See, there are things about Jesus that you literally can't come to know unless you repent. Unless you're willing to turn from some things to him. So it normalizes doubt. I think that's great. Uh, you know, because a lot, of, a lot of people want us to have teacher Jesus, to have sage Jesus, to have hippie Jesus, but not resurrected Jesus. Uh, but it's... But it's uh, We've got to have resurrected Jesus. We're going to have Jesus. Okay? So let, let me keep going. So then Jesus starts speaking. Look down at verse 18. All authority in heaven and earth, he says, have been given to me. Now stop there, because this is like literally, this, literally... I'm not being metaphorical. I'm not doing preacher talk. Literally, this is a revolutionary statement. Because Galilee is part of a backwoods province of the Roman Empire. And Rome has an authority. Right? You know, Rome, the Roman Empire during this time stretched everywhere from like India all the way to Great Britain, into northern Africa, uh, right up, basically right up to the Sahara. Like it was huge, massive, and it had one lord. His name was Caesar. He had all authority on the earth, right? But here's Jesus declaring the fact that he he is the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. See, you have this statement coming from the mouth of someone who like a month earlier had actually been put to death by Rome. Like Rome killed him and he's up saying, no, no, I'm the one with all authority. Jesus is saying that he is the ruler of the world. And not just of earth, right? Of heaven and earth. Where does he get that? Well, not to be trite, but it kind of comes from the fact that he rose again from the dead. Right? Uh, he rose from the dead. I, Jesus, or Rome had done its worst to Jesus. I mean, what, what more could you do? There's really nothing more that Rome could have done besides killing him. They killed him, and he was like, is that all you got? Nah, I'm good. I'm good. And now, so are you. So we're, we're getting on with things. So, when, when Jesus was put to death, he was put to death because of the very claim he's making here. The fact that he is the king. I know that we're not really big on authority, but when Jesus came and claimed the title Messiah, we, we attach the term Messiah, that the New Testament says Christ, either with Jesus' last name, or um, as the word Savior. But the word Messiah doesn't mean Savior. It means King. It means King. It means Anointed One. It means King. In the, Old Te- in the Old Testament, that title was for God's King, who would come and make the world right again and restore us to God. And that is what Jesus is claiming here. Jesus is saying that everything, everything He is about to say, everything else comes out of the reality that he is, in fact, right now, the rightful authority on the planet. On the planet, not just Judea. To put it into kind of more contemporary terms, it's not like Jesus was getting ready to do a, a, an exit from the Roman Empire, right? Would that be a Jexit, I guess? Not a Brexit, but a Jexit. Like, he's not just doing... He's not just pulling that. He's saying, I'm the rightful authority on the whole planet. And remember, Caesar still sits on a throne, 
he is still sitting on a throne. And so he's claiming this title. Jesus is claiming this title as a reality apart from what they necessarily see. Caesar did his worst to Jesus, and he rose from the dead. And to be quite frank, when a dude says he's going to rise from the dead, and then he does it, you believe what, he's, what he says. It kind of gives him some authority to speak to things, right? You believe him, and you follow him, okay? Now let's get to the call itself. Look at verse 19. Now, structurally, the call comes from the mission, and I'll get to that in a second, but I want to know the first thing that he says there. He says, go. Now, let me remind us, as, as we look at the idea of going, that the people that Jesus is talking to right now are his remaining followers. When he was out in the wilderness, he had a large group of people that followed him. They slowly dwindled down because he said things that freaked them out. And they slowly dwindled down to a group. And then he came into Jerusalem and a lot of people were like, yay, Jesus. And then all of a sudden, he got arrested. And like everyone went, poof. Right? So they all fled. And now the only ones left are like his, his original disciples. It's a very small group of people. But here's the other thing about this. This is not an elite. This is the church. These are the only Christians left. These are the only Christians. So that's the first thing. This is not an elite. This is the church. Second, he's telling them to go into all nations. Think about that. Jesus has just said that he has all authority. All authority. All of it. And this means that all of the nations, all of the nations, are his. They're all his. And so now he's telling his people to go to all the nations. So Jesus is not saying, look, I'm really your authority, but I'm not really interested in being anyone else's authority unless they really want me. Because I'm, you know, we all have different authority structures. We should really just let everything be. He doesn't say that. He says, all authority is mine, so go to all that is mine. It's pretty gutsy, right? I mean, for many of us, this is, this is like really offensive. We want gentle Jesus. We want meek and mild Jesus. But here's Jesus claiming that he's king of the world, and so his people are to go into all the world and do something, which we're going to get to in a second, for him as king. Now, here's one thing I bet many of us in the room didn't realize. The people that he's talking to, this group standing on the mountain who are both worshiping and doubting, again, really comforting to those of us who do that, uh, these folks are called to go in spite of the fact that they have families and jobs. I know that we think that all of them were like really poor people who just hung out in Judea all day long until Jesus came along and said, come follow me. But remember Matthew, he had a job, a very profitable job. So did Peter and Andrew and James and John. They had a small business. They were small business owners, right? If, if Matthew was part of the 1%, like the, the, these other guys, they were, they, had a, they were small business owners. They had a fishing business with boats. In other words, they weren't hired out. They hired other people to get on their boats and go fish with them. So they were small business owners. We know that Peter had a wife. Like, we know that they had families. And so Jesus doesn't say, like, hey, listen, we're going to leave what I'm about to say to a few dudes who don't have any ties. He tells them to go. And the why comes from the authority, right? We just said it a second ago. He claims all authority, which means if you're a first century Jewish person that he is now king of the world. And he got there according to the whole of the New Testament because what he had done 42 days before this. Jesus came to reconcile us to God. To reconcile us. To deal with our rebellion. And our rebellion is what the Bible calls 
sin. But sin isn't breaking rules. I know a lot of us grew up with that, and a lot of us have been taught that, and and really in our culture, that's just what it means, which is why we don't like the idea of sin, because we go, why are your rules better than my rules? Well, that's fine, but sin isn't about rules. It's about a relationship. It's about breaking a relationship. And so some of us do that by wanting to find satisfaction apart from God. We generally call that immorality. That's more the way I lean. What? Did the preacher just say he leans towards immorality? Yes, he did. But some of you aren't like that, right? And you're probably the ones who went, I can't believe he just said that. Like, that's not the way you lean. Instead, your, your independence from God, your rebellion doesn't look like that. It, it generally looks instead like wanting to find a status apart from God. You're fine with satisfaction, but you want a status apart from him. You want to you be seen as good, be seen as successful, be seen as responsible. That's what we generally call moralism. And that is also sin. So sometimes it looks immoral, sometimes it looks moral, but it's all sin. But Jesus lived the perfectly dependent life that we couldn't. And, and then before God, he bore the punishment for our sin. And then he rose from the dead, right? You know the story. We just talked about it. So God dealt with our sin in Jesus, reconciles us to himself in Jesus, so their fuel, the fuel for those who go, comes out of the finished and accomplished work of Jesus. Now, here's the problem. Here's the problem that we have as Christians. If you're not a Christian, just check out for a second, okay? But here's the problem we have as Christians. Jesus said, go and make, and we've turned that into sit and watch. Haven't we? He called his people to go and make disciples, and now we say, come sit and watch. Now, don't check out on me, because I know some of you are tempted to. But remember, this is the whole of Jesus' followers right now. This is not just a treasured few. This is not just a a select number. This is the whole of Jesus' followers. And so this passage makes it very hard for us to view the church as a place for us to come and be consumers, which is what we do in every other sphere of life. So it's really weird for us. We're used to places where we come and we sit in our chairs and we're entertained. And we go, okay, well, I'll I'll give so that I can stay entertained. Jesus tells his people to go. He sends his people, not his professionals. And I said this a few weeks ago when we looked at Abraham, but throughout the scriptures, when someone has a personal encounter with God, the glorious, all-powerful, gracious, loving God. When you, have an ex- when you encounter him, you are sent by him. He tells you to go. These people have an encounter with the risen Jesus, and he says, go. Now that brings us to the mission of the mandate. So stay on verse 19, because he says to go and make disciples. Now, uh, disciples is a very churchy word. Uh, we, we use that. Sometimes we even use that in secular context, but, but it's, it tends to be a churchy word. Basically, it means follower or learner. And in this case, it means follower or learner of Jesus, not of Peter, not of uh, Matthew. It means a follower of Jesus. Okay, so structurally, like I said before, this is the center of the passage. Everything else in this, verse 16 all the way to verse 20, comes from this. This is the, the hinge, so to speak. So Jesus is sending his people to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're not familiar with Christianity, Christian view of God is a little complex, okay? 
Christian view of God is that you have one God in three persons. One God with one essence in three persons. Uh, one pastor who I think puts it well for us is that he says it's, it's one what and three who's. Okay, not three gods, not one God in three different modes, but one God in three persons. The calculus is hard, and I get it. The church has wrestled with it with a long, for a long time, but it, that's what it is. And so, in other words, when he says to go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, he's saying go and make more people Christians. Go into all the nations and make more Christians. Okay? So, now, some of you, again, are going to be offended by this, but listen, because you have to understand why Christians believe this is important. Because we believe that all of humanity, all of humanity, not just a select few, not just one country, all of humanity, ourselves included, are in rebellion against God by nature. By nature. We're all stuck in our independence. So remember what I said a second ago. Sometimes that independence looks like being immoral. Some of it looks very moral, but it's all independence. Immorality is the one that we run to, but some of us have an independence that looks very moral. So what, is that, what does that mean, Rick? Well, that means you're, you're, trying to, you're trying to work for God so that he can come and say, well done, you're so good. We want to work so that he'll, he'll like us. But God says, it's independent of me, not done out of a dependent relationship with me, and so it's still distant from me. Our problem is not that we're not good problem is that we have a broken relationship with God. So now here's the, here's the really important thing. Christianity does not give you a set of rules to follow to make things right. It gives you a person to know. It gives you a person to know who made things right. The way for us to leave our independence is to stop placing our hopes on us and instead to place them on Jesus. So we depend on Jesus. So if Jesus is God's only means for us to return to dependence on him, he's the only way for us to be rescued from our guilt, to be rescued from hell, and to be restored to him, then of course, of course, we try to help others encounter him. We want others to come to know Jesus because if we didn't, we'd be the most unloving people in the world. Say, go have fun with your judgment. I'm not going to talk to you about it. Right? That's not loving. It's not loving at all. So two more things about this. First, notice that Jesus is not saying, go and do this thing so that I will like you. Right? Jesus conquered sin and hell. Jesus has done all that that was needed to be done to rescue us from our betrayal of God. And now he offers that freely to any who would come to him purely out of his grace. Christians do not seek to see other people become Christians because we're insecure. Because we need to have more Christians so that we feel like we're right. (laughs) We don't need that. Nor do we do it to make God happy with us. We do it because God is happy with us. Only in Jesus. And if he can be happy with me, he can be happy with anyone. He can be happy with anyone. Okay? So that's the first thing. Second thing I want us to get about this in particular is that making, going and making disciples implies something. It implies you were not born one. You were not born a disciple of Jesus. Now, you may not be able to remember a day when you didn't love Jesus and have faith in him, and I hope that's true for most of us, right? If you're raised in the church, I hope that's true of you. I pray that for my kids. I hope that's true for all of these little ones in this church. Uh, 
I want that to be true, but you are not born a Christian. Okay, so listen, this is so important, especially here in the valley. Just because you grew up going to church, just because your family's family's family has always been in that place, just because you're American and not Buddhist does not mean that you are a Christian. Becoming a Christian means placing your faith in Jesus. If you were here this morning, and you would, you would self-identify. You'd say, yeah, I mean, I think I'm a Christian. But you don't have affection for Jesus. You don't have a desire to serve Him. You don't have grief at sinning against Him. I dare say you need to start asking yourself, am I really what I think I am? Disciples are made. And Jesus says they're made through other disciples. And that leads to conforming, okay? Jesus tells them not just to baptize, which would have been big, but he also says, and then go and teach them everything that I've commanded you. Not a small deal, okay? Jesus isn't looking for converts, he's looking for followers. Which means that a a Christian is not marked primarily by a decision made for Jesus, like, 30 years ago at a youth rally. Right? It's, it's not marked by that. It's marked by a faith in Jesus that seeks to continually bring your whole life under his authority. And again, teaching to obey implies something, right? It means that that does not come naturally. You don't have to teach someone to do something that becomes naturally to them. They just know how to do it. But to teach to obey means that when you become a Christian, you do not obey automatically. We have this tendency to think that when we... Um, that, that when we pray a prayer and that, that, we, that we can go and pray a prayer about following Jesus and then what we do doesn't matter, okay? Jesus seems to think it does because Jesus' work wasn't simply delivers from the penalty of sin, but the power of it too. Not just the penalty of sin, as if like all that, that Jesus was about to get out of jail free card, now, you can, now I'm, I'm free to continue in whatever I was continuing in. It's about delivering us from the power of sin. So what I'm saying, and what Jesus is saying, is that we obey not to achieve God's grace. We obey because we've received God's grace. But the life transformed by Christ as a disciple will seek to be conformed to Christ. Right? The life that's transformed by Christ will seek to be conformed to Christ. All right starting to get long here, so let me get to the presence. Look down at verse 20. Jesus says, look, followers, go and multiply because I'm the authority of the world. Okay? And, and in saying that, this is really important because everything that's about to come next, and we mess this up all the time, what comes next is grounded in that. What comes next, the go and, you know, that we'll get to in a second, is grounded in the go and make disciples. Jesus says, in other words, I'm with you always. But he says that to those whom he just told to go and make disciples. So let me be specific here. Christ promises his special presence to those that are going. Christ promises his special presence to those that are going and multiplying themselves. If you were here this morning, and it's been a while since you experienced Jesus' presence in a special way, let me ask you, are you going? Are you making disciples? If not, maybe it shouldn't surprise you. It's been a while. Why is this? 
Why does he say that? Why isn't he just giving us a general comfort about how he's always with us? And isn't Jesus always with us? Yes. By his spirit, he dwells within us. But that's not what he's talking about here. (laughs) What he's talking about here is his, his, his presence with us in mission. Is a special presence with us in mission. Why is that? Because the mission of the king is the mission with the king. You and I can't make disciples. Ever made one? No. The answer would be no. Even if you're like, but I've got all these people. No. No. You haven't. We can't see other people come to know Jesus. Paul said that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Ever raise the dead? Didn't think so. Okay. Neither have I. We're all in good company. The only one who ever has? Jesus. He does it regularly. It's kind of his specialty. Okay? So Jesus can raise the dead. You and I can't. So he'll be with us as we go because he is out. He is going. Lastly, though, that comes, lastly comes that promise, okay? Specifically, let me speak to the promise, the, the, the content of that presence. I will be with you always. So listen, if you're a Christian here this morning, and I would guess that many of us are, it is not because you were smarter than anyone else. That like, you heard, you heard the gospel and you were sitting next to somebody else and they heard it too and you were smarter than them so you grabbed it and they didn't. It's not because you're smarter than your neighbor. It isn't because you're more moral than your coworker, And it isn't because God is lucky to have you. You are a Christian here this morning because Jesus lived perfectly. He died sacrificially and he rose victoriously for you. It is because... When you were his enemy, not when you were his kind of buddy, not when you were coming close to him, when you were his enemy, he sought you out. And he didn't knock on the door of your heart. He broke that sucker down and raised you from death and brought you with him. He is the one who does this work. And so if if you're a Christian here this morning, you're thinking, Rick, I can't make a disciple. You're in great company because neither can I. That is why we need Jesus' presence, because he can. That is why this mandate is based on his authority and grounded in his presence. If Jesus said, go and get this done, we'd all be lost. If Jesus said, go and and raise up a new congregation in Fishersville, good luck with that, we'd be lost. Can't do that. I have no idea how to do that. He told his disciples when he first met them, Come follow me. You know what comes next? And I will make you fishers of men. Not come follow me and go figure out the right tackle to use, the right lure to get, how big a net you need. Come follow me, and I'm going to make you into fishers of men. You think this is overwhelming? Let me give you some perspective. We're sitting in a city of, I don't know, school's not in session now. Uh, 25,000 people, right? 25,000 people. This is a small group of people. Comparatively, this is a small group of people for 25,000, right? There's like 12 dudes on a mountain. They're the only Christians in the whole world. And we're overwhelmed. When these guys heard this, 
Can you imagine how overwhelmed they were? But Jesus is saying to them, I'm the king. I've got this. I've got this, but I want you to go so that I can be with you. We are called to help people encounter Jesus, and he takes care of what he takes care of. Our job is simply to arrange the encounter. Okay? So let me leave you with a couple of thoughts. First, a question. This mission, this mission, this mandate, it's called the Great Commission a lot of times. Like the last words of Jesus. This is a big thing. This mission that he sends us on is based on what Jesus came to do. It's what he lived for. It's what he died for. So let me ask you a question. Are the things that you're living for this morning worth Christ dying for? Again, if you're a Christian here this morning, Jesus died to see the lost rescued and the world transformed by transformed people. Are the things that you are living for worth Christ dying for? Are the dreams of your life worth Jesus dying for? If not, what are we doing? What are we doing? I got to sit with a dear sister as she made her transition from a life here to eternal life with Christ. I can tell you this for certain. She didn't take anything with her. She didn't take anything with her. Are the things that we are living for right now worth Christ dying for? What what are we doing? As Jesus followers, we give our lives to something because Jesus gave his life for it. We give our lives to something because Jesus gave his life for it. Now, second. Some of y'all are freaking out right now. Uh, And you're freaking out because you think what I'm about to ask you next is for you to take your afternoon and to go door-to-door in your neighborhood and um, knock on doors and become a crazy evangelist. I'm not saying that, but here's, here's what I would say. Some of you are that. Some of you are that. Some of you, you get in a conversation, you don't even know why. They always seem to end up towards Jesus. Like, I can't just talk about the McDonald's menu. All of a sudden, I'm talking about Jesus. I, I, was, I wanted a Big Mac. I, why do I keep talking? Like, you are, you are gifted in this way? Some of, some of y'all are. I can tell you, I'm not. But some of you are. You're gifted in this way, and you need to quit sitting on that gift. But most of us, that's not us. Most of us, that is not us. What I am saying is not that you've got to go and try to be that. What I am saying is that we are called to multiply ourselves. If you don't feel comfortable, some of you heard me say this so many times, you're so sick of me saying it. Some of you, if you don't feel comfortable or competent sharing the gospel with someone, bring them here. Just bring them here. I'll make sure it gets done. Okay? I'll make sure it gets done. But in the meantime, who are you praying for? Who are you hoping that you're going to see sitting next to you in worship because their life has been transformed by Christ? We have this thing called Friendship Sunday. It's coming up in about 10 weeks. Who are you praying for right now? You're hoping they're going to, they're going to come and they're going to be transformed by the gospel, and I'm praying that God does it. Who are you inviting into your groups, your small groups, that they can see what life as a Christian in Christian community is like? Who are you inviting to come worship in this place? Okay? Let me be really specific. 
If you are a Christian this morning and you have changed go and make into sit and watch, something has got to change. It is beyond, listen to me, it is beyond strange, even hypocritical, to sit here and to sing about how great the work of Jesus is and then to leave this place and never tell a soul. How great is that work if you never talk to anybody about it? This isn't a call given to the few. It's not given to the professionals. not even given to the leaders. This is a call given to the followers of Jesus. And it's not a call that's to be executed in some program where you go and you read a script to people that you'll never see again. It's meant to be done in relationship. It's a path that we walk in relationship with our neighbors, our friends, maybe our fellow students, and our co-workers who don't know Jesus. If this is your first time at Holy Cross, let me just say, we are unapologetic about the fact that this is why we exist. We are here to help people encounter Jesus, to know Jesus, and to show Jesus. So they can go and show Jesus to others. This is the mission we are called on, not by ourselves. Jesus doesn't send us out to do this on our own. The mission of the King is a mission with the King. Would you pray with me? Lord, over this... uh, I don't even know what to say, Lord, because I know if my heart and where I'm at is anywhere close to where my friends in this room are at, it's a mix between ambivalence and just downright anger uh, and um, maybe even just disregard. Which just shows, Lord, that we need the Spirit to come and to work in us. We need the Spirit to work in us to move us beyond ourselves. Because we are bent towards selfishness. Some of us in this room need the Spirit to come and move in us so that we can even come to Jesus for the first time. So Lord, if that's true, if, if, if there are folks here who um, have been convinced that if you just got enough evidence, they'd believe in Christ, I pray that you would work in them even now. That they would see that it's not evidence but repentance that's needed. And Lord, I pray that you would shape this church, this congregation, us individually as people, by this mandate. Not that we would go out of, out of some sense of duty, but that you would become so great in our eyes, so marvelous and majestic and wonderful, that we couldn't help but share it with others. Lord, use this for your glory, and as we go, would you, would you answer your promise and be present with us? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.